Jesus, we thank you so much for Christmas. We thank you for the opportunity that you give the orchard. Father, we pray that this church would be a light to shine on Jesus and that through the next two nights, people would come to know you in a new way. We thank you for our children. Father, we pray for the children of the orchard that you continue to have them be children of character and virtue. And I pray, Father, that your word and your truth would sink deep deep within them. In Jesus' name, amen. I love Christmas. Since I was a kid, I've loved Christmas. I never grew out of it. I'm the guy that um, when I hear the Christmas decorations have gone up in the store, I go walk the aisles. You know, and I push the things that play the songs, and I just soak it up. Now, there's people like me. Who's like me that just loves it as, as early as it happens? Yeah. And now, who are the bah humbugs? I mean, who are the rest of you who... You don't want any Christmas music until like the week of, the day of, maybe never. Any ball humbuggers in here would just admit it? Okay, okay, a couple of you. All right, okay. There's plenty of churches that would love to have you, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> I love Christmas. I love it. And, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful time of year, but we know this. The Grinch taught us, all the movies have taught us that Christmas is not about presents and gifts. It's about so much more. It's, it's, it's not about what's, what we get to do. Christmas is actually about what's been done for us. And so today we're going to look at the Christmas message in a new way. We've had a preview up here, and you'll, you'll see some, some familiar themes. But Christmas is a wonderful time of year because it's, it's the declaration of the coming of the Savior of our souls. Now there are four accounts of Christmas. There's four Gospels in the New Testament that look at the life of Jesus. And each of these Gospels takes a different view on Christmas. In fact, we have Luke. He gives us the most detailed because Luke set out to interview all the eyewitness people to get all their accounts and have an orderly account of all that happened. And so when you read Luke, you're reading him as he's talked to different people and interviewed different people. And there's a lot, a lot of detail in there. Then you get to John. Now, now John, and we're going to look at John a little bit later, but John is like the Star Wars of the bunch. It starts in a long, long time ago, and the galaxy far, far away is how John starts his gospel. Then we have Mark, and Mark skips Christmas entirely and starts right when Jesus starts his ministry. Then you have Matthew, and Matthew gives us some insights into people that Luke didn't have access to, specifically Joseph. You know, Joseph, um, he's not in much of the accounts of Jesus, and the thought is that he must have passed away at some point, and Luke did not get to interview him. Also, the wise men from the east, Luke did not get a chance to speak with them. But before we get to the New Testament account of Christmas, Christmas didn't start in the New Testament. We, we, we think it did, but Christmas started much, much farther back. In fact, I'm going I'm to travel 700-plus years before the manger, to an ancient book of a prophet named Isaiah. Chapter 7, verse 14. If you want to turn to your Bibles or scroll with us or you can read on the screens above, we're going to look at what this ancient prophet said 700 years. He said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. And here it is, this prophet. He's inspired by the Spirit of God to write something. And it's very strange to write that sentence. Isn't it? I mean, we, let's, let's look at this sentence. First of all, it says the Lord himself. Not a prophet, not a text, not a horoscope, not somebody else giving us this news. Or the, the God himself, God himself is going to make this happen. It says the Lord himself will give you. He's going to give us a gift. Now gifts are freely given. The Lord isn't playing white elephant here. There's no stealing at the end. There's no bait and switch. There's no exchanging. The Lord himself will give you a gift. Now, What is this gift? The Lord himself will give you, the gift is a sign. Now a sign is something that often points to something else. 
It's a sign is something that comes with a message. It points the direction. It, it shows the way. It's an announcement. Look, something's happening here. That the Lord himself is going to give us a sign. Now, what is this sign? The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. Now, this, this is an oxymoron. This, this, this doesn't happen. Virgins don't conceive. Those two things don't go in the same sentence. But again, God is giving a gift to all hu- humanity, and it seems this gift is something impossible. And I just want to state that this verse was penned by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the manger, and it stood as this dangling chad, this like laughing stock, for hundreds of years. Generations passed. Kingdoms came and empires fell. But Isaiah wrote that a virgin would conceive. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if you don't know the Christmas story, you would think, why did they put that in there? It's ridiculous. In fact, 700 plus years later, a young maiden stood in front of an archangel. And he told her that she would conceive a baby. And her response was the same as people had had for generations before. It's kind of ridiculous. And she said, how could this be? I'm a virgin. You see, this girl, Mary, is echoing the thoughts of every person who'd read it or would be in her position. Like, how could this even be? The Lord himself will give you a sign, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, the gift of God is a sign. The virgin will have a son, and the son will have a name, and his name is Emmanuel. Well, Emmanuel has a meaning to it, and Emmanuel means God with us. God is announcing that a sign will come, that he will give it, and the sign will be that he will be among us. This is no small sentence that Isaiah is penning. It's no small thing that he's writing. That somehow, in the impossibility of this one verse written 700 years before the manger, God himself promised that he will come and be among us. And and then generations happen, and kingdoms, and kings, and queens And this prophecy stood out there. And so we move forward 700 years from that sentence from Isaiah, and we pick up in Luke, and he says this. Well, Mary has been told she's going to have a baby, and the angel says to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to call him Jesus. Now, in in their language in that time, he wouldn't have said the name Jesus. He would have said Yeshua. Yeshua is is a Hebrew, it's a the name, the name Hebrew, the Hebrew name Joshua. Now Joshua means deliverer, rescuer, he who saves. And so this, this, this name they're giving to this chosen one coming is, is he who saves us, Yeshua, our deliverer. This means something. Joshua in the Old Testament was a military leader who, had, who, who led God's people um, into the promised land, into a new reality well, maybe this new Messiah, this Yeshua, will be a leader to lead us into a new reality. Luke continues, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. There's so much depth in that verse right there, what it means for our earth. But what he's saying is this Messiah will establish a movement that will be eternal and have eternal implications. And then we turn to Matthew, who talks about Joseph. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her, to, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because she, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So, Mo, so Joseph is having this moment hearing from this angel who's, who's uncovering the reality of what's actually happening. It says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, he who saves. So Joseph begins to put these things together, I'm sure. The angel continues because he will save his people. Oh, I know where this is going, Joseph thinks. I know where this is going. He who saves, born of a virgin, this is, this is the Messiah. This angel, this archangel is talking about the one who's been promised, the one we've been waiting for. He's going to save us. He's going to throw off Rome, this corrupt government. He's going to raise up like Joshua and lead us militarily into freedom. But the angel wasn't finished with the sentence yet. He will save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph might have been a little confused. I don't know, I'm just guessing. Save from our sins? That, that's not what we need a Messiah for, angel. I don't know if you know this, Mr. Angel, but we have a temple, and we're kinda, we got to kind of like taking care of the sin stuff. We're down, we've been doing it for quite a while. We're good with that. What we really need is someone to come take us out of the oppression of the government that's over us. What we really need is someone like Joshua. And this happened throughout Jesus' life. People were constantly confused about the agenda of Jesus. People were constantly inserting and insisting that Jesus be on their agenda. And for those people who expect Jesus to join them in their agenda, he constantly disappoints them. You see, Jesus didn't come to free a nation with military might. He didn't come as a political activist to change the corrupt government. He didn't come as a religious superstar to get wealthy off his miracles. You see, Israel thought they needed a new king. Israel thought they needed a new government, a new prophet, but... But these were small agendas compared to what Jesus actually came to do. You see, Jesus came as a savior. Because it wasn't just one nation or one political party or one group that he needed to rescue. The world needed a savior. Generations need saviors. Jesus had a divine purpose. The divine purpose, he was sent by God to come and live a life, die, raise again, and draw people to God. His purpose was above those things. His agenda was to, to die for all people and invite all people to God. And guess what? 2,000 years later, here we sit. What do we still need today? Savior. What do we need more, more than any other agenda? Our culture, our hearts need a Savior. From here we go to Luke 2. While Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in the manger because there was no room in the inn. And now we're on the same page. We get this, right? We've seen this. We have this nativity at our house. We arrange these, these things every Christmas. We know this scene with, with the baby who apparently the song said never cries, and it was probably really sterile, and there was no pain for Mary, Right? No, I mean, come on, this is, this is real life here. But we have this baby being born, Mary and Joseph, the cows, the donkey. But wait, there's more, because he continues. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared, rending the sky, appearing up there in the night sky. And angels were praising and saying, glory to glory. Glory to God in the highest heaven on earth. Peace to those whom his favor rests. Now there's been a question among scholars. Why did Jesus choose to reveal the birth of the Messiah to some shepherds on a hillside. Like, why are they so special? And the answer is, I think that God revealed the Messiah to some shepherds on a hillside because they weren't so special. You see, the thing about shepherds we need to learn about is in that community, they were vital. You know, with the, uh, the temple and the offerings, the sheep were necessary. Sheep were a big part of their culture and their business. And so these, they had jobs that they were needed. But because of their job, they were constantly, ceremonially, and ritually unclean. Which would mean, though they could provide the sacrifices for the temple, they themselves couldn't really take part of it. They were vital to the community, but they were kind of outcasts from the religious system that they helped feed. They were unclean. They were religious outcasts. And here, God commands his angels to announce the Messiah's coming, not to the religious elite, not to the priests, not to the faithful, not to the rich, not to the influential, but to these outcasts on the side of the hill, to the everyday man and woman who's, who's doing their work while the temple seems to pass them by. You see, God's doing a new work here. He's doing something new at Christmas. Because after Jesus, there will be no ceremonially unclean outcasts. Jesus is coming for all people of every kind. And God's hosts revealed a Messiah to the most unlikely candidates. And it says, when the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, well, let's go check it out. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord told us about. And these outcasts are the first to hear of it, and they're the first to witness the Messiah. And this pattern doesn't change. As you continue to read the life of Jesus, who does he choose to be his disciples? The outcasts. The JV squad. He says, come, follow me. You see, Jesus is not building a monument based on status. He's building a movement, and every single person is a candidate for his love and his salvation. And it doesn't matter how much or how little you have, how much influence you have. Jesus calls all people. And, and we want to finish in the book of John. John begins well before the manger. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this is a striking statement from John. In the beginning. Now, people who have knowledge of the Bible would say, I know what in the beginning comes from. In the beginning is in the beginning. Page 1, Genesis. In the beginning was creation. Okay, I'm tracking with you. But he, he's going well before that. You see, we have this belief that the creation or Genesis was act 1 of God's movement. But it's not act one. There's a lot before that. And John's talking about something that came previously. In the beginning was the word, capital W. You see, John refers to Jesus by many different titles and symbols. 
And he starts off the book inspired by God's spirit by calling Jesus the word. And later he even states in John 1.14, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's Christmas. Jesus, the personification, the embodiment of all God's written and spoken words, come to earth to model for us what it looks like to live God's way, to love God's way. Jesus came in the flesh, fully divine, fully man, the embodiment of God's word. So John 1, 1, Jesus was present in the beginning. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. Those three statements full of spiritual dynamite that, that Jesus had no, had no um, beginning or end, that, that he's eternally present with God as God. And he didn't, he didn't pop into existence in, during Christmas. That wasn't the start of Jesus. You see, we, we see that Jesus has already existed as part of the miraculous trinity with God. Did you know, in fact, that Jesus is present in the Old Testament? That Jesus makes appearances in the Old Testament. When you begin to see that, it begins to leap off the page, and you begin to read this book, and you see that the Old Testament is pointing somewhere. It's not actually, actually, it's pointing to someone. And it goes to a manger, and then it goes to a cross, and then we turn, and the New Testament begins to change, and then it goes to an empty tomb. You see, the Bible declares someone, and that's Jesus. John shifts gears in verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light to all humankind. The light that was in Jesus is the light to humanity. The light that was present in the manger, the light that went to the cross, the light that died, and the light that, that rose again out of the tomb, that Life is the light for all people. And it's powerful. The next verse says how powerful. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if you've come in the last few weeks, we've shown you some experiments with light, haven't we? And we've watched the darkness flee. Darkness cannot be present where there is light. Light makes it flee. And it says this, the darkness has not overcome this light of Jesus. The Christmas began well before the manger. Christmas began well before the creation Christmas is God himself come in human form, the light of the world, and the darkness cannot stand against him. And for those of us who come to Jesus and trust him, that light of Christ is within us. And it reminds us that no matter how dark the culture dims around us, no matter how black the future may seem, no matter how hopeless the present conditions may declare, and no matter how lost life may be, that the darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. And that there is always hope, always hope, where there's Jesus. You see, Christmas in true context is not a story about warm fuzzies. Christmas is less cute when you view it in its context because it's more of a divine invasion of light into a world of darkness. It's a daring rescue to come and ransom the heart's of God's children from sin and from death and to call people to him for freedom and forgiveness and grace. Christmas is not only the fulfillment of a promise, but also it comes with a lot of promises. But so many prophecies point to this. In fact, did you know that the birth and life and death of Jesus fulfilled only over, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament? 
over 300. No other religious leader has prophecies written about them, let alone fulfilled. Jesus stands unique in how this points to him and prophesied about him. And I did some research for Jesus to even fulfill eight of those prophecies. Mathematicians have figured out the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros for only eight. If he was going to fulfill 48 prophecies, that would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. But Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He didn't fulfill 48 prophecies. He fulfilled over 300 And we have to remember, these prophecies weren't conjured up after the fact to retrospectively look like they matched it. They were written centuries before he came. Generations. These prophecies were penned by prophets and authors who longed to look upon the Messiah. The final book of the Old Testament is 400 years before the manger. And even the harshest critic has a hard time discounting the astounding oddity, just the oddity of all the prophecies fulfilled in one person. You see, Jesus was born and he fulfilled the, the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. They, they wrote these prophecies and then generations went by. Centuries went by. People longed for a rescuer. They longed for a deliverer. They longed for the one who would come and, and save his people. And then suddenly, that archangel stood before a young maiden. After all those prophecies, after all those years, he stood before her and he told her that she was going to be the one to give birth to the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And she was shocked and humbled and she was frightened. But the archangel finishes telling her this by, by saying something that is so striking to me. He says, no word from God will ever fail. That down throughout the generations and the kingdoms and the families and the centuries and the years of people who longed for a Messiah and some had given up on it and some thought it was ridiculous, the angel said, no, no, no. The word of God will never fail. This is the testimony of Christmas. That God's word is fulfilled. Christmas is so much more than a holiday. It's so much more than a birthday. It's so much more than a tradition and trappings that we put upon it. Christmas is when the skies opened up and exploded and and angelic beings declared the Savior had come. And nothing, nothing from that first Christmas would ever be the same. History changed. Timeline changed. And hearts today, 2,000 years later, still change because of what happened on Christmas. And finally, I want to read to you from a a verse written by John. John's an old man. John, he knows Mary. He's he's gotten to know Mary. He's heard all Mary's stories about her sons. In fact, John knew Jesus. He followed Jesus. He's called the disciple that Jesus loved. John was there. It says, and he watched Jesus be crucified. He watched him on the cross. John was there. He ran with Peter to, 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 to find the tomb empty. John was there in that room when Jesus appeared, resurrected. And from that moment on, John spent the rest of his life proclaiming the love of Jesus. And that same John finds himself, because of how he lives and what he preaches, sent into exile by a king who did not like the teachings of any other king. 
So he sends John to an island, and there he is by himself. And he, he decides he's going to write this book to, to, to pass on all that he has seen. How do you summarize Christmas? Like, out of all that John has seen of Jesus and heard and followed, what do you write to summarize Christmas? And, and, and sitting there, whatever he was at that moment on that island of Patmos, the Spirit moved within him, and with it, his hand began to move and write about Jesus in Christmas. And how do you summarize it? And here's how John summarizes Christmas. For God, so loved the world that he gave as a gift, as a gift, not with a hook, not a bait and switch. He gave his son That whoever, anyone, anyone, can, can anyone, this qualifies us all. Anyone who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's Christmas. That motivated by divine love, Jesus came. That God loved us so much, he wanted to make a way for us. And we celebrate a baby in a manger and Santa and presents, but we have to remember just the sacred, amazing fact that God moved heaven and earth for Emmanuel, God with us. Today, I want us to be reminded of the glory of Christmas, to see the centuries and generations of unfulfilled prophecies that were satisfied in the life of Jesus, and many of them on that night that baby didn't come just to be cute. That baby came to pay a ransom for our freedom. The word of God declares a savior and Christmas declares a savior. And tomorrow is Christmas Eve, Eve, and then Christmas Eve. And, and we get to declare the light of Christmas to thousands who will come here and be a part of this. It's part of the privilege of being, of being here. And what an opportunity for us to, to shed the light and be the light to our community. And what a pleasure for us to see God work in us, but also to see God work through us. We talk all the time about love God and love people. Which people? All people. No asterisks. That's who we are. And we get a chance to, to show that love of Christ the next two nights. What a glorious truth Christmas declares. That, that our deliverer, our rescuer, that he who saves has come. And in the spirit of that, I want to invite you um, just to stand with me. We're going to say a Christmas prayer together over the weekend. If you guys would go ahead and stand up. We don't do this often, but we're going to do it right now. Pray with me. Jesus, we stand as one to thank you. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for coming as a Savior. God, thank you for your word that never fails. May we know more of it in the coming year. Spirit of God, move in power. Move in power this Christmas. In me and through me. And may we, the orchard, be your light to this world. Jesus, our Savior, we thank you we bless you. We honor you. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated.
as we go into this song, we're going to have communion. And I want to remind you, you know, we all, communion, if you're a guest of ours, communion is an open table. It's open for any who would want to come take it. And it's the symbol of Jesus' death, his broken body, his shed blood. And today's a little interesting because we are celebrating the birth, a baby. But the baby leads to a cross. And so as you sit there with the elements in your hand, think of it in context of that first night where this little baby came into the world with a divine purpose to open a path to God Almighty. If you're here today and you have a prayer need, you would like someone to pray with you or for you, we have a prayer corner in the back. We would love to pray for you. And as we go into this, this last song, it's called Noel. It comes from a French word. It means birth. Noel, Noel. The birth on that first Christmas night as we celebrate the coming of our Savior. Amen.